Hey, hey, all you lovely people out there. You've got a lot going on in your day with big dreams and big goals for your world. Are you ready to talk some shizzle and learn some shizzle from leading entrepreneurs, changemakers, coaches, and overall interesting people who like to shake things up? I'm your host, Taylor Shanklin, CEO and founder of Creative Shizzle, and I am stoked to bring you a fresh episode of Talking Shizzle today. This show is all about helping you think differently so that you can grow. Talking Shizzle is brought to you by our team at Creative Shizzle, where we help businesses, entrepreneurs, and social good innovators make amazing marketing shizzle happen. Check us out on the web at creativeshizzle.com. Now, let's talk some shizzle. Welcome, welcome back, folks. We are here on a new episode of Talking Shizzle. What's up? We've got sidekick Will, also now known as sidekick Billy, as of today. <laughs> that or Robin. <laughs> And Robin, we're, we're working out the nicknames. My names just keep growing. <laughs> keep growing. Well, he's the uh, number one teller of dad jokes on this show, and we're going to expect one by the end of the conversation today. But today we're on the line with Nick Esposito. He is really a social entrepreneur. He's done a lot of things in Philadelphia in the social good space in sustainability and urban Farming. So I'm excited to get into that with you today, Nick. How's it going? Well, that's really good. Thanks for having me, Taylor. Excited to be here. It's good to have you on. And I'm really curious to ask you more about urban farming. You mentioned that to me offline. I don't really know much about it, so we'll get into that. But tell us a bit about who you are, your background, and what you are about. Sure. So I've done some urban farming in the city. That's kind of where the journey really began um, after I got out of uh, doing AmeriCorps service. So I was an AmeriCorps uh, reliever right after Katrina and ended up down in Louisiana, learning a lot of things down there. Again, just, you know, what happened post the storm, you know, thinking about just, you know, a lot of the the impact that like, especially the fossil fuel industry and the oil industry had and kind of, you know, exacerbating the storm in many ways. At that time, the people in Louisiana were starting to kind of really rethink their economy and the way their lives were lived. They really, you know, to use a pun, kind of uh, bet the farm on uh, on oil. And they came from a very agrarian people, the Creoles, the Cajuns. And so there was a big revival down there. And this was at the same time that like Michael Pollan had written The Omnivore's Dilemma. And I just started thinking like, wow, you know, there are a lot of things wrong with our food system. You know, how can I get involved? And I started working on some urban farms down in Louisiana did some traveling around the world and then ended up back in Philly where there's this incredible urban farm scene, which I'm excited to, to talk about more and worked on a lot of projects. I, I worked for the urban nutrition initiative out of the university of Pennsylvania. I worked, uh, started my own organization called Philly rooted and we built a couple of urban farms. Now my wife and I, she had already started an urban farm. That's how we met. And now we live on an urban farm in, uh, in the Kensington Fishtown neighborhood in Philly. So kind of started there and, uh, was really involved in land management, ended up getting a job at Parks and Recreation in Philadelphia. And just telling the story that as I was teaching uh, our grounds maintenance people, all these really great techniques around more sustainable land care and all these cool things. I found out that although all the things that we were doing were really great, these guys just are really just picking up trash all day. And at the time I had an opportunity to join what's called the Zero Waste and Litter Cabinet that was started in Philadelphia as part of the, the Kennedy administration. I 
was really wrestling with wanting to make that move. I know it was a big, it was going to be a bigger job, becoming a director, all these different things in city government. And uh, yeah, I, I talked to a uh, one of the grounds maintenance guys and kind of told him about my dilemma about leaving the department. And he was like, yeah, all we do is pick up trash, man. Like you got to solve this. You seem like a kind of guy who could do this. So I joined the administration, started working in there. And even though I left during the pandemic, it put me on this path of what I'm doing now, working in circular economy, which I'm excited to talk about a little bit more. And uh, that's uh, what I'm doing today. So you're now with an organization, you do a couple of different things, but you're now with an organization called Circular Philadelphia. Tell us a little bit more about what that is and the work that you do. And yeah, I'm curious how that big job got you into this nonprofit. And you were one of the founders of it, right? Yeah, I founded it with um, my co-founder and co-director, Samantha Witchin, who's our director of programs and operations. I am the director of policy and engagement. And uh, the reason that I do policy and engagement was the work that I did in government. You know, I have a lot of government contacts. I also know a lot of people within the sector. So it kind of fits me perfectly to do that. Where it really comes from is, you know, when I was zero waste and litter director, setting a goal of zero waste is great. Basically, the goal is as simple as no longer relying on incinerators or landfills to manage our waste. So you're finding ways to recycle better, reuse, reduce, designing waste out of systems, all these different things. So setting the zero waste goal is great, but it's like, how do you get there? And as I started to kind of really unpack over the three and a half years that I did the work, it's building a circular economy is how you get there. So basically what a circular economy means is rather than what we call this like linear kind of take, make and trash model. So you take things out of the ground, you make something with it, and then you just throw it in a landfill never to be used again. Now on a planet with obviously finite resources, like I always joke, like if the aliens came down and just, we explained how we did things to them, they would be like, are you people crazy? Like what is wrong? Like you have all these really great resources, you're exhausting them, and then you're just not doing anything with them, right? So the circular economy reimagines that. It's how do we look at it as a cycle? If you take something out of the ground, how can you use it as long as possible? How can you reuse it? And then how do you kind of replenish that source that it came from? That's anywhere from wood to metal to textiles. I joke that I feel like I'm just playing one big game of Settlers of Catan, basically. That's like what we, who has the wood, who has the metal, who has the ore, who has the wool. So it's uh, how do you kind of work that into the economy and just really rethink how we, we make our economy. And that's the work that we do at Circular Philadelphia. And it's a kind of progression of the work that I had started as the Zero Waste and Litter Director. Well, what's a common example of that? Give me a product, any product, look around. I have my garbage. I throw my garbage out. What's a common use case that all of us can relate to, in which case you're like, okay, this is how you would make it fit into that circular economy. Sure. So everyone is familiar with recycling, right? And that's, they get excited. They put their things in their blue bin and it gets taken away. So I'll use glass as a great example. Glass is the first thing you think of, right? When you think of recycling, it's the poster material. Sadly enough in this country, our glass does not get recycled. So what should happen is you take all this glass together, you mix it up, it gets a little crushed, and then it can be put back in and call it cullet. The cullet gets melted back down into something that they can reuse. And we need to do this because we're like running out of sand in some places to make glass, right? But what happens in the streams that we have, because you mix everything into that one bin, which is way more convenient for us, but for the system, when it all gets jumbled up, basically what happens when it goes to, we call them MRFs, the material recovery facility, the glass goes into the facility, it gets crushed and it falls through these grates and it gets mixed with all the other stuff that's fallen through, little bits of plastic, little bits of paper. So it's so dirty the best thing that they can use that glass for is covering landfills with it. It's crazy. 
I was explaining it to my colleagues. I was on a learning tour in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. And I, and they, again, were, they're not aliens. They're people just from over in Europe. And they were shocked that this is how we manage our glass. So a better glass system is, you know, getting it separate and segregated as we call it. So you can kind of crush it up and use it or to even just reuse those bottles. Like there was a time back in the day where when you got done, Germany still does this. After you get done with a case of beer, you put all the bottles back in, you bring the case back to the supermarket. They take those bottles back, refill them. And you have this cycle of endless glass because glass is an amazing, amazing product. So that's kind of what we're reimagining. We're going to cycle recycling was kind of like a bandaid on a pretty deep wound. And now the wound is really bleeding because of this crazy consumption that we have of single use products. So that's just one example, but I can talk any product, uh, electronics, clothes, metal, all similar issues and similar ways that we could rethink the, the process. That's fascinating. You know, it's like, as someone who has sat there and spent a lot of this time sorting my recycled goods, thinking through it, thinking I'm doing the right thing. And then you're like, actually, the system doesn't really support it that well. Like, what do you recommend to everyday people who are trying to do the right thing with recycling or using less? The first thing I'll say is that what we're trying to do, and again, we're not trying to lose community focus. So Circular Philadelphia is a membership-based organization. We have organizational members everywhere from like Turner Construction, which is one of the biggest construction firms in the world, to like little mom and pop stores in Philadelphia that do like refillable things to larger subscription services for refillable products. There's this great company in Philadelphia called The Rounds that they're going to pick my pickup today. They come and they deliver all the things I need with no packaging. So paper towels, toilet paper, it just comes in a bag that they reuse all the tote bags and they're constantly in this reuse system. So what I like to see is entrepreneurs that are creating these businesses that are kind of alleviating the burden off of the person. And that was the lie of the 20th century. It was so those bottles I talked about back in the day, Coca-Cola, the bottles would actually say, this is property of Coca-Cola. Like they wanted that glass back, but now the materials got so cheap and we just thought it doesn't matter. Who cares about the sand 20 years from now? We'll just keep pulling like and doing these single use bottles they shifted the burden onto the taxpayer. So it's on you to have to figure out what to do with your waste. It's on you to pay taxes to your, you know, your municipality so they can handle your waste. And now you're starting to see that burden shift. There's a thing in Europe called extended producer responsibility that's putting fees on the businesses, the packaging companies that are making all of this packaging that they have to figure something better out. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is, you know, that's, you need more options in your area. An easy one would just be composting, right? Like not throwing food in the in the trash. And most, it's across the board, it's usually about 20 to 25% of waste in most people's households are organic waste. So composting is one, you know, you're down in North Carolina in the mountains. I'm sure you got some land to, to compost. So you can do that personally. I just throw banana peels out in my yard because I live in a forest and I'm just like, meh, it just, it just go into the nature. yard. <laughs> yeah, it's a little more challenging and not to say people don't throw stuff all over the ground in Philadelphia, but, but that's the, the challenge. But yeah, you're starting to see these entrepreneurs where they're, so I would say like really see like at Circular Philadelphia, we have this whole, we call it the zero waste at home guide. It's thankfully we have a lot of businesses emerging in Philadelphia that do this. So like the rounds I was telling you about, that's an option you can use. There's places where you can take your clothes back, like all these things that if you know about utilize these services. And that's what we're trying to really build here in Philly. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Something we started buying is 
the compostable like forks and spoons and knives, you know, like that, that's one way that we found. Sometimes you see it at restaurants now where they'll either they have paper straws or they'll have something that is a compostable material. So we even like, instead of buying plastic cut cutlery, there's this stuff made of potatoes or whatever. So it like, it just, the premise is that it, when it gets tossed out, it actually decomposes. So I was sometimes using my backyard as a compost. And then my husband was like, the problem with that is we live in an area with bears and then you're just throwing food out in our yard and then it attracts the bears to the like, front of our house. I'm like, eh, well, that's maybe not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Will's got like a glass half full joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a good farm one. Why shouldn't you tell a secret on a farm? Why? Because potatoes have eyes and corn have ears. Oh. <laughs> I thought that was clever. Why did the scarecrow get an award at work? He was outstanding in his field. Oh, uh, excellent. <laughs> you guys. So let's shift gears a little bit. Tell us about urban farming and what that is. You live on an urban farm. I feel dumb for saying I, I don't really know what that means. Yeah. So an urban farm is um, basically it's just a farm in a city. So it's an it's an urban space. It's as simple as that. But there's you know a lot to unpack to it. I mean, again, talking about reimagining our systems, like our food system. While you do have to give credit to it, like the the food system that the Western world, particularly the United States, has created in the 20th century, is the most productive, abundant, efficient food system ever created on this planet. Like the concept of famine is like, we don't have crop failure where a bunch of people starve to death, right? Like these are things that are good. And that's the thing, like 20th century industrialism brought us a lot of good things, hot showers, indoor plumbing, you know, not going to the outhouse anymore. Like these were good things, right? But we just did them in a wrong way that we need to correct for if we want to continue living this lifestyle. So our food system is one of them. Like, sure, we have amazing production, but at what expense, Right what they call like monoculture, corporate farming is heavy on pesticides that are getting into our food. They're heavy on synthetic fertilizers based off of fossil fuels. They're stripping our land away. We're losing an inch of topsoil every year, which is crazy, right? So we just need to reimagine our food system. And I don't know what it's like in North Carolina, but I'd say like in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, luckily we have a lot of vibrant family farms that still exist that are getting really squeezed out right now. So what we're trying to really do is urban ag is a great vehicle for it's not going to feed everybody in the city right but it's a supplement to food definitely for lower income people right and it also just shows people where food comes from the biggest cliche when you're an urban farmer is when you show a kid who comes to our farm like this is where a carrot grows like they don't know how carrots grow they've never seen the little green kind of salt coming out of the ground and it's a root vegetable like people are so disconnected from their food so it's a really a way to stay connected to food it's a way to keep beautiful green spaces in your neighborhood. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. It's like kind of, it's a community space slash, you know, a farming space. And, you know, I think back to, there's a, a really famous family in Pennsylvania called the Rodales. They created the Rodale Institute. They, they really talk as them. They're the kind of the godfather, you know, of organic farming in the United States. And Bob Rodale was one of the kids that would say, you know, because we would have people come to our farm, an urban farm, and they'd be like, this is so small. Like, this isn't a farm. This is a glorified garden. My backyard garden is bigger than this, you know, people from the country. And Bob Rodale said one time, it doesn't matter if you're feeding three people or 3,000 people. If you're growing food to feed people, you're farming. And that's what you're doing. So the way we run Emerald Street Community Farm with my wife and I is unlike a, 
a traditional community garden where you have to commit to it and tend it all year, which people find it hard to do if they're renters or they have kids or busy schedules and they travel in the summer. So we basically have created a communal farming situation where we took over this couple lots in the city. It's about a quarter of a city lot. And we've got six farm rows. We've got a whole berry patch with a fig tree. We've got chickens. We've got a compost area. And everyone comes and works on it communally. And we say, like, you can work as much as you want, as little as you want. You can take as much food as you want. You can take as little as you want. Just being mindful of it, thinking about your neighbors, and it all somehow, some way works out. So you can come and like this. I was just thinking of this woman, Marisol, who was just here. I had her replant our beets to space them out a little bit more. And we just got some amazing rain. And I went out there the other day and they just looked so happy. And I'm like, I can't wait for Marisol to come back in a week or two to be like, hey, Marisol, remember those beets you transplanted? That's what they look like now. Take a few in a couple, you know, in a month when they're really ready to go, you know, and that's, that's what we do. I think there's something to be said for like reconnecting with the earth as well, though, because I know for me personally, when I'm gardening or growing things like I, it's like running or, or just that reconnection, you feel good about it. That's just the way I feel too, at least maybe I'm wrong, but (laughs) it's always a good feeling. Scientifically, like touching dirt, like really, especially good, nice soil that's rich in nutrients is like beneficial for your body, your body, like it needs those microbes that kind of exchange. So yeah, you got to get your hands in the soil. Well, I think you're right. You said we're so disconnected from our food to the point where kids don't even like understand that a carrot grows in the ground. Like that's, that's not a good place for humanity to be in. So I think it's really awesome that you guys are trying to bring this more to the surface, even in the big city. Right. I mean, I, it's actually reminding me there is a little kind of community, local herbal, urban farm right down the road from me. And I guess I don't think of myself living in an urban area because I live in the mountains. So it kind of fits in, but I'm like, well, it's right next to a strip mall in Walmart. So it is an urban farm and I drive by it all the time. And it, it's just small. It's like a block. It takes up about a block of space. And I imagine it's, people can go in and can they just set up a usually like can you rent a space in an urban farm like that if you want it and you don't have it in your backyard or is that usually how they work well it comes in all different shapes and models i mean there's like that's more of a community garden type thing and they can even go from like a little you know planter box bed in like a really tight area to like you know in philadelphia we have bigger tracts of land that you can get like a 30 by 30 plot that's like your community garden space there's organic for uh, urban farms in Philadelphia, especially that are production farms that actually are producing food. There's a food cooperative called Weaver's Way in Philadelphia that they have a farm that supplements like produce that goes into the food co-op that people buy. So there's, you know, they come in different shapes and sizes. Um, there's this really cool person in Philly, uh, Krista Barfield. She runs a thing called Farmer John, and she's really trying to make like a real go at making money off of an urban farm, which you could do it. You can make money off of an acre of land if you do it right and you have value added products and things like that. So, you know, it comes in all shapes and sizes. For us, this is a kind of grassroots labor of love. And we were just covering this. So Grid Magazine is another, you know, I work for Grid Magazine. We, we've been Philly Sustainability Magazine for 14 years. And we're working on an article right now around a report that came out by the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture saying, you know, farmers don't make barely any money in our country, right? It's crazy. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear people be like, well, I, I farm because it's like my family's been doing it. And it's in my blood. I got to keep the farm going. But you'll hear other people be like, yeah, I don't make that much money. But like, you know what? I'm home a lot of the day. Like I grow food. I can things. I build things around my house. Like 
my life is not just based off of I need this much money to pay all these bills. There's this way that you can kind of create value for yourself. And I think that's something I've really learned from the farm is even though we don't make any money off of it, I couldn't imagine living without it, both from a food standpoint and also just from just having the space. It's part of my life. It's like, you know, vocation as a, as a life, right? Instead of just like a job that you go to and then you come home and don't think about it anymore. So that's how we kind of look at it. Well, and you even see things that have happened in our world in the last couple of years and the importance of people being more connected to their food sources, you know, like, I mean, in the height of COVID when none of us really knew what was happening or going to happen, I don't know about you, you, well, you probably were less scared than me, but I, I was like, what if the food supply system completely breaks down, you know? And so you think about that and just being able to know, I know how to grow food. We have it in my community farm, like communities being able to take care of each other. It seems like such an essential part of our DNA that we have become so disconnected from. I think it's great that you're bringing it back up to the surface. So you live in this, uh, intersection of entrepreneurship and philanthropy or, or social good. I think we're now starting to see this whole new, you know, I would call it sector of social entrepreneurship or, you know, social impact, whereas it used to be called maybe more traditionally just nonprofit. What advice would you give someone who's, you've been doing it a while. What advice would you give someone who's maybe a young entrepreneur that's like, I'm entrepreneurial and I want to run a business, but like you said, like it's not all about the money. It's about purpose and impact and creating a product that gives value to the world and also does put food on the table at the end of the day. Yeah, I think what you just ended with was I think that's the the key. You know, it's you have you have to you have to be mission driven, right? There's a mission for what you want to do and really, you know, evaluate like your intention. Why do you want to do this? You know, what's it for, right? for the fame and the glory and all that? Or is it for like, you're really trying to make the world a better place. But as you build a business, I think one thing that I see, and I've made these mistakes myself, is really understanding like, what is the pain point that you're trying to solve for, right? So we look at this in circular economy is that, sure, we need to reduce waste. It's a noble goal. And where I think sustainability really lost its way in, its, in the conversation is sustainability comes with this message of limit and scarcity and like, things are harder, right? It's like coming to somebody, this is not a great business proposition to be like, so I'm going to sell you this thing. It's more expensive. It's harder to use. It's more time consuming, but you should get it because this is going to be good for the planet, right? It's like, that's not a way to sell something. It's, you know, you have to really look at, aside from, you know, what do you think the major pain point is, right? Overproduction or, you know, waste or whatever it may be. What is the need kind of in the market that's going to facilitate that and make it work? So again, I, I use the, the rounds, I think is a really good example of a great business in Philadelphia that looked at packaging needs to be reduced, but also when they're getting people, their packaging, their customer service is incredible, right? Like I was texting with someone last night because their website was going really slow and I couldn't update my cart because I needed laundry or uh, dishwasher pods. Like I needed them and because I got to, you know, or I'm going to go to the store and buy something that's already packaged. They responded to me that night and were able to update my card, apologized, and they said, we'll do some engineering work, right? Like that's the kind of thing that really makes a business work. And they're targeting people that aren't even just about just wanting to reduce waste. It's more just like, I live in a small urban environment, like a little row house. I don't have room to go to Costco and buy 
50 things of toilet paper in bulk or all, like I want this thing on a weekly basis that you're delivering it on e-bikes. You're doing all the things right. And you're making my life easier. Like that's a good business proposition. So definitely thinking through being able to decouple kind of needs from wants, right? You want everybody to do this certain action, but what do they need to do? I think that's something to really focus on. And also just not letting the mission kind of cloud out just good business practices. Like, again, not telling people, I know our customer service is awful, but you know, we're a really good company for the planet. So you should just put up with it. Like that, that doesn't work. That's not a good business model, but no, it's true. And I agree. I've never been someone who goes to Costco and buys a bunch of stuff. So when the whole toilet paper debacle happened, I didn't have a big stock of toilet paper because I don't shop at Costco. And you know what we did? We bought a a bidet. We ordered a bidet and I was like, well, well, if we run out, then we'll just at least have this, you know? (laughs) Well, Nick, this has been a, a really great conversation. I've enjoyed your time and I've learned a lot of shizzle that I wasn't expecting to learn today. So that was, that was awesome. Will, any, any closing thoughts, any shizzle you've picked up on today or closing dad jokes? No, uh, I'm, Nick mentioned a lot of awesome companies that are local to us, Farmer John, The Rounds. Um, it, the conversation was awesome. I definitely did not know that about recycled glass in as technical as we went. So like I, I learned a lot. All right. Well, thank you, Nick Esposito. If people want to get in touch with you, maybe read Grid Magazine, learn more about Circular Philadelphia. What's the best way to find out more and or get in touch? Yeah, so definitely go through. Uh, please read Grid. Um, check us out. Any story ideas, we always take them. You can reach me at nick at gridphilly.com. And then Circular Philadelphia, our contact information is on there. And you can find, again, it's a one-stop shop for all your needs for the circular economy in Philadelphia. And uh, you can get in touch through that website. Thanks so much. All right, folks, this has been another episode of Talking Shizzle. Until next time, we hope you find some sizzle in your day. Well, hey there, that was fun. I love how much mind-blowing and mind-opening shizzle our guests bring to us with every episode. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Make sure you hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast player so that you don't miss a beat of the Talking Shizzle podcast. And if you're listening on Apple, be sure to let us know what you thought and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners so that we can bring you all the good, juicy business growth shizzle that you would like to hear about. Get in touch with us and follow along at creativeshizzle.com or email us at podcast@creativeshizzle.com. Until next time, keep making your shizzle happen. Mm-hmm.